What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast where we talk everything about MMA. I hope you're having an amazing day, an amazing week, and happy holidays, everyone. We are approaching the end of the year. I'm not really going to be doing too much, just spending some good downtime with family and friends. And I think we'll have another podcast episode before New Year's. But we're closing out to the end of the year. That means all the UFC fights are done. Looks like all the big boxing fights are done. And we can pretty much recap of what happened. So too much. If you were to ask me right now what happened in the beginning of 2021, I could even tell you. I think it was a Conor McGregor fight. Yeah, he fought Dustin Poirier for the second time. Man, actually that didn't even seem that long ago. Their second fight did not seem like it was in January. Their third fight was in July. Wild time flies. Overeem fought Volkov this year. You had Usman versus Burns. You had Usman versus Covington. You had also Usman versus Masvidal. He's 100% the fighter of the year. A lot of people are debating about what the fight of the year is. I can agree with Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler, which is a fight a lot of people pick. But in my personal opinion, it's 100% Piotr Jan versus Corey Sanhagen. As exciting as Gaethje and Chandler was, as explosive and powerful that fight was, it just wasn't as technical for me to put it over Jan versus Sanhagen. Jan versus Sanhagen was one of the most technical fights I've ever seen. And it had the explosiveness. It was super exciting. It had the flashy striking. It had the takedown attempts. It had the overall game that you want to see in an MMA fight. It was one of the highest level fights we've ever seen before. You had a knockdown in there as well. And those guys just went at it from start to finish in five rounds. The third round of Gaethje versus Chandler started to slow down a bit. It was just mainly Chandler walking into punches, and I can understand where the excitement to see Chandler walk into punches and not get knocked out and just, like, tank everything blows your hair back when you're watching it. But it was pretty one-sided, that third round. So I have to go with Jan versus Sanding. Now, the knockout of the year. This can go so many different ways. There were so many great knockouts. Sergio Pettis' knockout over Kyoji Horiguchi was insane. Yuri Prohaska's knockout over Dominic Reyes. Derek Lewis' knockout against Curtis Blades was crazy as well because Derek Lewis was losing the majority of the fight in the stand-up and just timed one takedown to knock him out with an uppercut. You don't normally see uppercut knockouts against takedowns. Terrence McKinney's finish over Matt Frivola was one of the fastest knockouts of the year. I might have to go to Ignacio Bahamondes knocking out Roosevelt Roberts with that spinning hook kick. Of course, Corey Sandig's knockout over Frankie Edgar. Usman versus Masvidal. These are all amazing knockouts. I also did like uh, Rafael Fiziev's knockout over Brad Riddell. I wouldn't name that as the number one because Baamundes' knockout over Roberts was just better in almost any way you could look at it. And honestly, that might have to be the one for me. Ignacio Baamundes knocking out Roosevelt Roberts might be the knockout of the year. Submission of the year. Vicente Luque's dark stroke against Michael Chiesa was great. For the way that the fight played out, a lot of people are going to pick Brendan Moreno's rear naked choke against Davison Figueredo. Just because of Davison winning the majority of their first fight, it reassured a lot of people's decision to pick him in the rematch against Brandon Moreno but then to see Moreno's performance against him and then eventually able to get that rear naked choke it might have to go to one of the best performances from a challenger this year but the submission was absolutely great as well to submit Figueredo is not an easy task but we have the submission upset trifecta we have the shocking submission wins over some of the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu artists of the sport number one Clay Guida submitting Leonardo Santos Santos for those people who don't know is a third degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Clay Guida has fallen on some hard times as of late. Cleaguid is also not known to be a great submission artist. For him to get that rear naked choke is stunning. And even bigger than that, Anthony Hernandez's guillotine choke against Adolfo Vieira was great as well. I think it diminishes the performance with the fact that Vieira kind of gassed out. And that's a main reason why Hernandez was able to submit him. And it's reason why the number one for me has to go to Andre Muniz submitting Jacare Souza. Yes, Jacare has slowed down. He's older in his career. He lost to a young up-and-comer. But the fact that he got submitted in the first round and got his arm broken in the process and the fact that Andre Muniz predicted that he would submit Jacare, which is such a crazy prediction for himself. Anyone to predict that they could submit Jacare is insane. For him to go out and do it, and not just that, do it easily. I had no problem getting that armbar on him. I think it has to win number one. I say that or the Cleaguida submission over Leonardo Santos. Now for the female fighter of the year, I guess it goes to Rose Namajunas for the fact that she did beat Zhang Weili twice. But it wasn't a great year to determine a female fighter of the year because no one really had an insane year like what Kamar Usman did, right? No one could really replicate on the women's MMA side to what Usman did this year. I guess it will be Rose Namajunas, but I know a lot of people are going to pick Juliana Pena. She also had two wins this year. One of them was against a very old ceramic man, but then the upset of Amanda Nunez is probably going to take it over. So I think it's Rose for the fact that she fought Jean-Marie twice and beat her twice, had a very good second fight and knocked her out in the first one, but I could see where people go with Pena. The comeback of the year can go many different ways. A lot of people would pick Kennedy Nezjuku coming back and getting that knockout win over Carlos Olberg. 
For those who don't remember, Kennedy was getting absolutely destroyed out there in the stand-up. Couldn't really get his hits in there. Olberg started to gas out as Kennedy started to pressure him really heavily and just smothered him with volume. A lot of people's number one, though, is going to be Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. I mean, Michael Chandler almost knocked out Oliveira in the first round. In the beginning of the second round, while recovering from the damage that he had to deal with in the first, he comes back and lands that left hook and reverses everything on to Chandler. Molly Marais versus Marab was insane as well. Remember, Marais dropped Marab. He started off with a check left hook while fading back with it and then eventually able to find another right hook. But then Marab was able to turn this around, get the takedown, even in the second round, landed that right straight into a double leg and just finished off Marais after a horrendous first round. Alex Caceres has come back against Song Wu Choi was amazing as well. I mean, so many great comeback finishes. I personally have to go with Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. I mean, that was so insane to watch. Going into the second round, you were for sure thinking that Chandler had this in the bag. And if there was a chance that Oliveira can get the finish is by tangling up Chandler on the ground when Chandler chases him by maybe dropping him again or something like that. To see Oliveira moments after coming out in that second round to lay the left hook on him, it was like something out of a movie, man. Of course, the breakthrough fight of the year was Hamza Shemaev. The upset of the year is 100% going to go to Juliana Pena. The coach of the year has to go with Trevor Whitman. The ref of the year, no more Herb Dean. Herb Dean's done. Ref of the year is Jason Herzog, 100%. Herb Dean, I don't even know how he won the last one, if I'm going to be honest here. I think he's just the most popular ref, the most famous ref, so they just pick him. But Jason Herzog is, for sure, the best ref in MMA. Analyst of the year? I don't know. But yeah, man, 2021 has been insane. Such a great year for the sport. Like I said before, MMA right now is the best it's ever been. It's better than the golden era. It was better than pre-Sufa era. It was better than the pride days. It's a very special time to be a fan of MMA today. I mean, we are witnessing some of the greatest performances that we're probably ever going to see in the sport at this moment. 20 to 30 to 40 years from now, we're going to be the ones that could go and tell our kids or grandkids, you know, I watched Peter Jan versus Corey Sanhagen live. I saw the meteoric rise of Hamza Shemaev. I saw the shift in the heavyweight division. I went to UFC 269 live. I went to UFC 268 live. Went to UFC 267 live. I mean, these are all insane cards. I witnessed the biggest upset in UFC history when Juliana Pena beat Amanda Nunes. I mean, we are in a moment where we're witnessing these kind of fights and performances that in the future are going to seem so special, where a lot of people are not going to have the privilege to watch what we witnessed live. And speaking of breakthrough fighter of the year, weren't we supposed to know who Hamza Shemaev was supposed to fight by this week? Because it seems like everybody's ducking him. I mean, Dana said that before, and then he said the only guy who's actually willing to fight him is Neil Magny. Neil Magny's the only guy, according to Dana, that is serious even behind the scenes about fighting Hamza Shemaev. Not just in public, but he's been wanting to fight Hamza for a while. Dana said everybody else is kind of like, okay, I guess I'll fight him instead of, no, I want to fight him. I want to fight him now. Neil Magny is the guy that wants to fight him right now. So my question is, if nobody wants to fight Hamza and only Neil Magny wants to, why don't they just put the fight together? Like, why isn't that already announced? I mean, these two are the kind of fighters who would fight anybody, anywhere, anytime. It's kind of weird that the fight is taking so long to get put together, unless... It's the UFC that doesn't want to put it together. Unless it's the UFC that's looking for something bigger for Hamzat. Maybe look at him to fight Gilbert Burns or Colby Covington. Because we do know that they try to put him up against Nate Diaz and that didn't work out. Nate publicly turned him down saying, you know, why are you guys throwing me a guy who doesn't have any fights in the UFC? He's a new guy. So perhaps they're looking at a bigger money fight with Hamzat rather than just putting him up against another contender. Now, let's be honest here. It would be a one-sided fight. I think Hamzat would absolutely run through Neil Magny. Neil Magny is not the best wrestler. He's not that great at defending takedowns, especially someone at the level of Hamza Shemaev when it comes to wrestling. He's easily pressured back. And yes, some of the jabs and long punches can probably get in Hamzat's way, but he's going to shoot it on the legs. Like, none of that's really going to matter for Hamza Shemaev. But at the same time, though, the fight makes sense ranking-wise. Neil Magny's number 8, Hamza's number 11. Or perhaps they're looking at him to fight Bilal Muhammad. Bilal Muhammad is publicly saying that he will fight Hamza, even though he's ranked number 5. Yeah, Bilal Muhammad went all the way up to number 5, 6 spots higher than Hamza. Maybe that threw a wrench into the UFC's plans. Maybe they were going to do Hamza versus Neil Magny. But now that Bilal Muhammad may be serious about this, they're looking to put this one together. It's hard to really know what the UFC is looking to do with Hamza right now, besides trying to get him a big money fight with Nate Diaz. That's the only thing we know. I personally like to see him get built up a little slower, make him fight Neil Magny first. Okay, so this is how the welterweight division should look like. Kamar Usman should fight Leon Edwards. The other fight that absolutely needs to happen, Colby Covington versus Jorge Masvidal. 
that fight has to happen. Makes no sense ranking-wise, makes no sense in the trajectory that their careers are going, but it's too big of a fight to not put together. If Jorge is really on this decline, if he starts to keep losing his fights, they're never going to put this fight together. Now is the time where both guys are coming off a loss. Then we got to do Gilbert Burns versus Vicente Luque. Both guys are well-rounded fighters, but Gilbert Burns leans more to the grappling side and Vicente Luque leans more to striking. Honestly, Burns versus Luque is one of the best fights you could put on right now. This all leaves Blah Muhammad in a very strange place because there's no other ranked contender above him that he can fight and he beat the next top contender Stephen Thompson it's possible they could throw him at Hamza Shemaev or they just make him wait make him wait for the winner of one of these top contender fights then you do Neil Magny versus Hamza Shemaev and Sean Brady versus Jeff Neal and then you line up Michael Chiesa and Santiago Ponzinibbio that's how you match up the top 10 of that division so welterweight right now is an excellent place but let's talk about the best division the lightweight division things are changing and people are not seeing it notice what's going on in that division right now notice the veterans the big names of lightweight and what's happening at the lower end of the rankings and right outside of the rankings while the veterans and the big names are fighting each other you know Oliveira's fighting Poirier Gaethje's in there Connor while these guys are fighting each other nobody's really noticing how the prospects are creeping up right now and soon enough, might take over the division before you even know it. Because honestly, it looks very similar to what happened at the welterweight division four and a half years ago. From number 10 to number 15, look what's going on right now. Gregor Gillespie, Rafael Fiziev, Matyush Gamrat, Armin Saryukian, and Brad Riddell. Diego Ferreira, I think, is on his decline right now. But the guys from number 10 to number 14 are all young prospects. Look how similar this is to the welterweight division when Woodley was in champ, when Wonderboy was number one contender. Robbie Lawler was number two. Damian Maya was number three. Carlos Conda was number four. Jorge is number five. Neil Magny is number six. Dong Hyun Kim is number seven. Cowboy Cerrone is number eight. Gardner Nelson number nine. Johnny Hendricks number 10. And then slowly the prospects start to creep up. Kamar Usman was rising the ranks. Colby Covington was in the lower part of the ranks as well. In that point in time, Santiago Ponsonibio, Leon Edwards, Vicente Luque, these guys start to rise in the rankings, and now those fighters are at the top of the division. All those old veterans, the Wonder Boys, the Woodleys, the Lawlers, the Mayas, the Condits, they're all out. Warnerboy and Jorge were able to hang on, but everybody else got beat by the prospects, got beat by the lower end of the rankings. That's what I see happening here in the lightweight division. Rafael Fiziev, maybe even Gregor Gillespie, definitely Matush Gamrot, definitely Armin Saryukian. Brad Riddell is going to make his come up. Guram Kutaladze. It's a huge possibility that these guys are going to take out the Geishis, the Poriers, the Connors, the RDAs, the Tony Ferguson's, the Dan Hookers, and maybe even Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush as well. The change of lightweight is happening in front of our eyes. Islam Makashev is the lone prospect who has made his way into the top five. All these veterans are soon enough going to fight those young prospects. We're going to see Chandler maybe fight Rafael Fiziev. We're going to see maybe Justin Gaethje or Dustin Poirier fight Armin Saryukian or Brad Riddell or Guron Kutaladze. And the change, the evolution of the sport is going to take place. Just like I predicted before. It seems like that change is going to happen very soon. And honestly, I can see Charles Oliveira hanging in there with those young guys. The rest, honestly, I can see getting beat. The only issue with Charles Oliveira is he just can't take this sort of damage, man. He's proved the doubters wrong about him quitting. He's a tough guy. He's much more durable than people expected. But at the same time, you do not want to keep getting hit like this. He got dropped by Dustin Poirier. He took some big shots by him. He got dropped by Michael Chandler. He's getting hurt and dropped way too often to have any kind of longevity at the top. Oliver's skills, especially his offensive skills, are some of the best the lightweight division has ever seen. But at the same time, his defensive skills are not going to allow him to display that sort of dominance that a lot of people are hoping for. Getting dropped by Dustin Poirier, who's not known to be a one-punch knockout artist, is not a great thing to see when he's going up against Justin Gaethje. If Justin Gaethje lands a hook like that on Oliveira, even though Oliveira is tough, I don't know how many of those shots Charles Oliveira is going to be able to withstand. Even if he goes out there and happens to win, finds a way to finish Gaethje, who is his next fight going to be? Islam Akashev? If Islam Akashev pounds him out on top, the potential damage that's approaching Charles Oliveira is scary. It's really scary. Which is why I don't believe he's going to be that long-reigning champion. He might be able to tie the defense record, but that's like as far as I'm giving him. I think he's one of the most talented fighters in the lightweight division we've ever seen. I think offensively, he's one of the greatest lightweights we've ever seen. But defensively, man, getting hit like this is not good for him. And also for the women's bad weight division, Juliana Pena beating Amanda Nunes is great for that weight class to make fights a lot more competitive. Because in my opinion, I like more competitive fights 
than a dominant champion. It's a lot more fun for me. It's way more exciting. And with Pena as champion, if she could beat Nunez again, let's say Nunez's cardio never recovers, whatever the cause was, whether it be COVID, overlooking Pena, whatever it is, if her cardio just never recovers and she's always going to gas out after the first round, Pena beats her, let's say, and I do think Pena would beat her again. There's a lot better fights for her. I don't think Pena holds the belt that long. I think Jermaine Duranemi beats her again soundly. I mean, for those who don't remember, Jermaine Duranemi literally beat her last year by submission. But it also opens up many other contenders to have competitive fights with Juliana Pena. If Nunes loses again, though, I think she'll wrap it up. I think she would just hang it up, be done with fighting. I mean, greatest female fighter of all time, and no one's even close to taking that from her, even with losing to Pena twice. It doesn't really make much of a dent in the positives that she's done in her career. Now, the big, th now, the big thing in the news is about Francis Ngannou. The negotiations with the UFC are still ongoing, and he has one fight left on his contract. It gets pretty complicated, though, when you're a champion, because there's something in the contract that's called a champion's clause. A champion's clause means if you win... As a champion, if I'm reading this correctly, it says you got three more fights extended or one year extended on your contract. Champions usually fight one to two times a year, so it pretty much adds up to one fight if Nganu goes and beats Surreal Gone, which is actually pretty contradicting to what Nganu wants to do. I mean, Nganu doesn't want to lose the Surreal Gone, but at the same time, he wants to test free agency. So the only way he can immediately test free agency is by losing a Surreal Gone. If he beats Surreal Gone, he has like another year extended on his contract. This puts Ngannou in a very strange position. Of course, beating Surreal Gone is going to gain him more leverage in the market. A lot more people are going to want him. He can go to boxing and do his thing against maybe Tyson Fury, whoever it is. He can make loads more money if he transitions into boxing and fights some of the big-time boxers. As a heavyweight with tremendous power, his chances against some of the higher-tier boxers or better than most other guys from the UFC. The fact that he could just land one punch against some of the least skilled boxers in all of boxing, when you include the difference between each weight class, Francis Agano at least has some puncher's chance against some of the best boxers. But the important thing is, he gets paid. He fights Tyson Fury, he's gonna get millions of dollars for it. If he fights Deontay Wilder, he's gonna get millions of dollars for it. And there's also the PFL. If he wins the tournaments at PFL, he also gets a million dollars for winning the tournament. But honestly, the only thing that seems to interest Francis Agano outside the UFC, or logically should interest him, is only boxing. Because as the heavyweight champion of the UFC, he's most likely going to make around a million dollars every single fight. So the only place that has more potential for him is boxing. He says he wants to stay in the UFC. His manager says that their plan is for him to stay in the UFC, but they just want his pay to be better. And honestly, this is good for him. The fact that he has someone who's fighting for him on this level, who's actually looking out for Ngannou's interest, is something that every fighter needs. Every fighter needs a manager like that. Because Ngannou should not be making less than like a couple million a fight. If he's going to draw like 400,000 pay-per-view buys or 500,000 pay-per-view buys, what's really going to determine what Francis Ngannou is actually worth is off of this fight with Surreal Gone. How well is this pay-per-view going to sell? This is what's going to determine what logically Francis Ngannou should be asking for. Because we could kind of scale it to John Jones or Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor making 50 million a fight against Habib, which is 2.4 million buys, means that, for example, John Jones is worth about $17 million because he draws a third of that 2.4 million. If Ngannou draws half of what John Jones draws, which is like 400,000, let's say a little bit more, 500,000 buys, if you do the math and scale it directly from Connor's pay-per-view cut, Francis Ngannou should be making like eight to $10 million a fight. Good for him standing his ground and trying to get what he deserves. But man, it's going to be difficult. He's going to have to be surreal gone to really have that leverage because the organization is not want to, is not going to want someone like Ngannou go as a champion. There's potential for them to make a bunch of money with Ngannou versus John Jones. All of that goes away. The Stipe Trilogy, the John Jones Super Fight, and anything built on top of that because those are the two big fights coming up for Ngannou. Let's say Ngannou beats both of them. You have one of the biggest stars in MMA at that point. He's going to be one of the biggest draws in the entire UFC. Any fight after that is going to do big numbers. They don't want to let someone like that go. Especially someone who's so marketable. He has a style everybody wants to see. He knocks out everyone. He has the look. He's intelligent. His interviews are fun to listen to. I mean, the guy is what a heavyweight champion should look like. And he's also not opposed to promotion the way Stipe Miocic was. So hopefully they can work this thing out. Hopefully Nganu gets what he deserves. And hopefully we get these big fights, man, because it's ultimately, as us fans, what we want to see. We want to see Nganu happy, and we want to see these big fights, man. But at the end of the day, I'm not favoring Nganu in this fight. I think Surreal Gan might beat him. I've been saying it for years, even before Gan beat Derek Lewis. I was saying this. It's not an easy one. There's a huge chance Nganu is able to connect on him. 
and just put him away. But honestly, this is one of the best fights that can happen in the heavyweight division. I'm honestly more excited about this fight than a trilogy with Stipe. It's almost up there with John Jones versus Ngannou. I think John Jones versus Ngannou is the biggest fight that UFC could put on in the heavyweight division. Second one for me is this one right here with Surreal Gone. And with all that, we're going to go right to the questions here. We're going to start with the members and the patrons, and then we're going to go right into a bunch of the public questions. So first one by Arik Rayford. What do you think caused Hennembarat to fall as bad as he did? And how do you think he would have done against Cruz? For sure, the downfall to Hennembarat were the losses to DJ Dillashaw. I also think the way cut to 135, he was a big 135, or eventually went up to 145. And potentially, I'm not saying this is what happened, but there's a speculation, the conspiracy theories, that he may have been doing something before USADA came along, because after USADA came, he did not perform the same. And he also couldn't even make the weight anymore. So I know 100% the TJ Dillashaw loss has had a huge impact on his decline. The kind of damage that he took in those two fights were horrendous. Were so bad. I mean, he said in the first one, after he got hit by that right overhand in the first round, he said he was not able to remember the other four rounds afterward. That's a very bad sign. After beating Mitch Gagnon, which he looked pretty good in, he rematches TJ Dillashaw. And he gets beat even worse. The damage was worse. And after that loss, he was barely able to beat anybody. The only guy he beat was Felipe Nover. And Felipe Nover was not some great fighter, let's be honest. Just objectively speaking. Hennemparov finished his career with two wins in his last 10 fights. Now he's in Eagle FC. He's going to be fighting in Habib's organization. We're going to see how he performs there, but man, he should not be fighting anymore. How would he have done against Cruz, though? It would have been a tough fight for Cruz. Prime Hennemparov was a monster. He had an insane takedown defense. Cruz didn't have that kind of power to hurt Hennemparov. Brown was also very patient. He had great leg kicks. He was a great body kicker as well. He had extremely good counter punching. He had an excellent style to beat someone like Cruz. Cruz's mobility and his lateral movement specifically was going to be an issue for Barrow. But I could definitely see where Barrow would have beaten Dominic Cruz. Even if he got Hennemarau to the ground, he's not going to outgrapple him at all. He's most likely not going to outscramble him. And it's going to be very difficult to hold down Barrow. So I'd probably actually lean Hennemarau, given the fact that he can counter many things that Dominic Cruz will come out there with. The takedowns, Cruz's winging punches, intercept Cruz's entries, and light kick him all day. And then your second question, if given one of these tasks, which are you more likely to achieve? Number one, convince retired DC or Terry Cruz to go on a diet, get Sage Northcott to go on a profanity-laced rant, make Tito Ortiz a coherent speaker, persuade Dana to spill the beans on his vitamin intake, conduct a 30-minute interview with Helen Yee while maintaining eye contact. Man, these are all challenging. Besides, I think Dana would spill the beans on his vitamin intake or at least give a hint about it. I would really want to know why he's turning into a tomato. Then we go to the sneaky skunk. A lot of people are claiming that Usman is doping. Your thoughts? Keep up the great content. Thank you so much, man. And there's actually another question that links up with this. So Justin Mack, more plates, more dates, made a whole hour and a half long video about what could possibly be going on with Kamaru Usman's possible doping situation, including info like one of his brothers being a pharmacist, I didn't know that, and the other brother looking jacked. Do you think there is something to this accusation? Keep up the good work, Weasel. Longtime fan. Thank you so much, man. So we can't say for certain. I mean, he's never been caught. So these are all just speculation. I will say though, if you were to ask me what fighter do you think is doping that hasn't gotten caught yet, I always say that the guy that looks like it would be Kamar Usman and the way he performs. He has insane cardio, insane power to go with it. He does have acne and he's insanely jacked. He also seems to be making the weight pretty easily too. So if there's anybody that there's any kind of signs of it, it would be Kamar Usman. That would have John Jordan. If you can make any fight happen, Assuming each fighter is in their prime, who would it be? So is this of all time, even guys who are retired? My number one would be Prime DC versus Prime Fedor. I would also love to have seen GSP versus Anderson Silva. I would have loved to see Robbie Lawler versus Kamar Usman, Prime Lawler that fought Roy McDonald. That would be an interesting one to watch as well. But right now, there's a few I would love to see. I would love to see Yuri Prohaska versus Magomed Ankolaev. That would be a very fun one to watch. The number one for me right now might have to be Islam Akashev versus Charles Oliveira. In my opinion, the two best guys in the lightweight division, the grappling that would be insane. I honestly think even the striking would be interesting given the fact that Islam's defense is stellar. That would be one of the highest level fights in the UFC right now. And then we go to the Patriots. We're going to start with Brandon Hartley. Hey Weasel, did you see the video on MMA fighting where he was interviewing Colby and he mentioned your video where you compared a similar takedowns to Colby's takedown on Usman. Also, when are we going to see the Weasel in the Octagon? Much appreciated from Canada. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, I did see it. You guys brought it up to me and that's pretty crazy, man. Every time I get shot out, it just always shocks me because I'm so zoned in on the content and zoned in on delivering for you guys. I completely forget that there's people like fighters, like coaches, like other media outlets 
that watched this as well. And regarding the takedown, the rules are just poorly written in my opinion. Colby's takedown is very similar, almost exactly the same as what happened with Armin Saryukian. Yet yeah, Armin's takedown was counted and Colby's was not. And there was a fight that happened recently, I forgot which one it was. I think it might have been Dominic Cruz's takedown against Pedro Munoz, and even Santiago Ponzinibbio's takedown against Jeff Neal. I mean, these are not consistent with the rules or what they usually warrant as takedowns. Dominic Cruz's takedown against Pedro Munoz had no control. Now, there's two takedowns that happened, so we don't know which one they actually awarded. I don't know if it was the one where Pedro Munoz almost got the inverted triangle, or it was the one where... Dominic Cruz caught the kick, pushed Pedro Munoz to the ground, and didn't really get on top of him at all. But neither of these are consistent with what they actually warrant as takedowns. And then you have Santiago Ponzinibbio's takedown against Jeff Neal, where it's like, yeah, he did get Neal to the ground, technically. He was over Jeff Neal's legs, but he had no control over Neal's upper body at all. And number two, Jeff Neal had a deep whizzer and was kind of elevating himself over Ponzinibbio. And as soon as Ponzinibbio attempted to transition, he got reversed. The whizzer was controlling Ponzinibbio. And according to the rules, you have to be able to establish some kind of attack after taking the opponent to the ground for it to be awarded as a takedown. Ponzinibbio did nothing in that manner. He didn't get a transition in there, he didn't get full control, and he didn't get a strike in there. The first quote-unquote takedown for Dominic Cruz against Pedro Munoz, again, had nothing of the manner. He had no control. In fact, Pedro was actually trying to get a submission on him. And for the second one, yeah, he did land a punch when he pushed Pedro to the ground, but he had no control there as well. And that's not consistent with what they usually award and not award as takedowns. They just got to rewrite the rules, man. The rules are so ambiguous. It's almost like the judges or whoever are counting these just like look at the takedown. They don't really know if it is or isn't. And they're just like, ah, oh, you know, it looks like a takedown. I guess I'll give it to him. And uh, when we're going to see the weasel in the octagon, it'd be great as soon as possible. But let's say if I were to focus 100% into fighting, and I fight as often as possible. I win every fight. Two to three years after, let's say, I win three to five fights a year. And then we go to Jesse Griffin. 165-pound tournament. Who wins? Everyone in their prime. Bracket one. Ferguson versus Usman. Poirier versus Covington. And then bracket two has Habib versus Burns. And Makashev versus Hamzat. So, for the first fight, only for the fact that Usman probably will not be able to make 165 comfortably or healthy... I might have to go with Ferguson on that one. Ferguson would have knockout power. He would have the cardio. Usman might be diminished. Whether it be his cardio, whether it be his chin, whether it be his power not be able to come down there. So I'm going to side with Ferguson due to that. But in 170, I think Usman smashes Ferguson. Poirier versus Covington. Definitely have to go with Covington for sure. I mean, he takes down Poirier. He dominates him on the ground most likely. Even in the striking, he's going to be able to get away with a lot of stuff. He throws many more kicks than Poirier does. He's longer and taller than Poirier too. Definitely have to go with Covington in that one, especially because of his wrestling. Habib versus Burns. That's actually a tough fight. That is not easy for Habib. No one takes down Burns and really does what they want to him. If anyone could do it, though, it would be Habib. Because Habib has never fought that high-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist off of their back. So we really don't know how it's going to look for Habib. Some guy attacking off of their back and all that stuff. We did see him get put into a guillotine by Dustin Poirier. He was not that high of a level compared to someone like Gilbert Burns. Also, Habib is not striking with Burns at all. He might be able to keep a jab on Burns, but he's not going to deal with the power. He's not going to deal well with the leg kicks and body kicks. And Burns is also a guy who's going to try to pressure Habib backwards. So that fight is up in the air in my opinion. I'm going to lean Habib, but if you lean the Gilbert Burns, I can 100% agree with you. Then Hamza versus Makhachev. I don't know how that would turn out because I don't know if Hamza can make 165. He's a big guy. So I'm going to go with Makashev on that one because I don't think Hamza is going to be able to deal with that weight cut. So then it would be Tony Ferguson versus Colby Covington at 165. Considering that Ferguson does have that knockout power to change things and he can go all five rounds with Covington and he's not going to be helpless off of his back and he has far better Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He can submit Covington at any given moment. I'm going to have to go with Ferguson on that one for sure. And then Habib versus Islam Makashev. I'm going to lean to Habib. Crazy. That leaves Tony Ferguson to fight Habib Nurmagomedov. And I do think Habib would have won the fight. Keep up the great work. I've been hearing, seeing more and more of the bigger figures in the MMA media shouting you out. Love it. Thank you so much, man. And yeah, it's pretty surreal. And then with the dangerously dubious Double Davidson. Hello, Weasel. Love your content. Thank you so much, man. I want to ask a question. As a wrestler of six plus years, I noticed with Islam, he has a very aesthetically pleasing form in his mechanics and wrestling exchanges. Far more than Habib. I feel he's a superior wrestler due to the beauty in his form. 
although Habib is effective but uglier. That said, I feel he's still unrivaled in top control. So my question to you is, how would Islam vs Habib go despite Islam having the technical wrestling advantage? Word in the street is, Islam used to hang very well with Habib in the gym, especially when it got to the ground. And that's the thing here, Islam cuts through things beautifully. He flows when he grapples with you, whereas Habib smashes the get through positions. Which means that most likely, Habib has more power and strength combined with his technique, whereas Islam, even though he's extremely strong and he's proven that time after time, especially in his fight with Dan Hooker, he will still side more with leverage and technique. And one of the best examples you could look at for Islam's technique displayed at almost full scale is when he fought Armin Saryukian. Most other guys were not able to exchange with him, so you couldn't really see how well he can actually scramble when the tension is high. If you notice something about Islam Akashev is, to transition through positions, you'll see him wrist control a lot, or hand fight a lot, or attack the opponent's arms a lot for him to create that opening so he can slice through. Habib, he'll go to the Dagestani handcuff, but usually manage through ground and pound. Habib likes to transition through ground and pound or squeeze in the opponent with body locks the way he did against Dustin Poirier for an example. Dustin Poirier attempted many switches in the fight and every single time Habib was able to hold the position with his body lock and ride on through and get on top. Now what I'm going to have to say is even though Islam looks prettier when he fights, his form is a lot more artistic, right? It's a lot more on point, picture perfect. I don't think he's as effective as Habib. Even though Habib is rugged with his wrestling, time after time, man, he's been shown not to get put into as dangerous positions or as bad positions on a consistent basis compared to what Islam does. The only thing we saw with Habib was some of the guillotines, right? Michael Johnson pulled one on him and Dustin Poirier put one on him. And maybe the takedown that April Trujillo was able to get on Habib, Habib's never really shown to be in such dangerous positions consistently. Islam Akashev, though, on the other hand, He's been put in some bad positions at times. He's got reversed. He's gotten taken down by some opponents. Right, Tiago Moyes is able to take him to the ground, even attack his legs at certain points in the fight because it doesn't stack on the opponent the way Habib does. He doesn't land the ground and pound and constantly make the opponent think about the punches rather than the position. Islam, more often than not, is just purely grappling with you. Whereas Habib is a master at ground and pound. So he's not just grappling with you. He's striking you with it. He's never just doing one thing. Islam will take pauses and moments to look for positions to pass through. Whereas Habib never does this. Habib just wants to smash through everything that's in front of him to get to where he wants. And that's a main reason why I'm going to have to go with Habib in this sort of scenario. I think Habib would be the one who would most likely get on top. He would mostly get the top control. And if he's on top of Islam, I honestly don't see Islam doing much against that ground and pound. Then we go to Mark Fletcher. Why doesn't Wonderboy throw sidekicks to the knee? Only he knows why. He'd be one of the best leg sidekickers in the entire sport. Like, there'd be nobody who could throw sidekicks to the knee the way he could. But he just refuses to do it. I mean, it's almost like, imagine Connor's like, I'm not going to throw any left hands to your body. That's how Wonderboy's restricting himself. And then we're going to go to Krenny Ayuba. What do you think about a potential Shafkat versus Hamzat matchup? Definitely both are on their way to the top of the division. And to me, it seems like Shafkat has the perfect style to compete with Hamzat. But it seems people aren't talking about it. The reason why people aren't talking about it is because people don't know who Shafkat is. They know Hamza, but Shafkat Rachmanov is a rather unknown commodity. He is so well-rounded. Like, it's crazy. The only thing that worries me about him is he doesn't move his head at times. That's the only thing that worries me about him. He'll keep his head up tall when he's throwing punches at times. And I could potentially see him getting caught by certain opponents. Everything else, the guy is so sound. Like, he's so solid in his striking. His boxing's amazing. His kicks are amazing. His timing's there. His wrestling's phenomenal. His grappling's phenomenal. His submissions are great. I could just see him as a guy who could potentially get hit by a lot of fighters. That's just it. It's almost like the problem Charles Oliveira has. But potentially him and Hamzat maybe some of the best well-rounded fighters in the welterweight division. There's not a lot of well-rounded guys in this weight class. Gilbert Burns is definitely one. There's not a lot of guys who can punch, kick, get into the clinch, wrestle, and grapple, and submit you the way these two guys can. Gilbert Burns might be the top guy, and maybe Leon Edwards is up there. But Shafkat and Hamza potentially do these things at a high level, especially Shafkat. Hamza still has some things he has to prove. But these two fighting each other is almost like a clash of the titans. That's how I see it, man. When these two guys rise the rankings, it's definitely going to be a fight that people are going to want to see. Now, the reason why Shafkat is not rising the rankings the way Hamza is, the inactivity. The guy is barely fighting. And yes, he has an upcoming fight in February where he's going to be fighting Carlston Harris, but that's a step down in competition. The guy literally went into the UFC and his first fight was against Alex Oliveira, a veteran. And then he went up against, I think it's Michelle Prezeris, and he submitted him too. Now fighting someone like Harris is a step down in competition. Potentially, unless Harris proves everybody wrong and does amazing things in the UFC. But if Shafkat wants to rise the rankings at his young age, the way Hamzat is, because they're both 27 years old, he's got to fight more. 
He has to get this fight over with, get the win here, and take a fight in a couple months. I am so looking forward to see these two guys fight. And with that, we're going to go right into the public questions. We're going to start with the most liked comment by Russell Poe. Charles has said that he would be interested in dropping down the featherweight again to become a double champ. How do you see him doing against Volkanovski and the other top featherweights? I am so hesitant about this because we've seen him at featherweight and he's not the same guy. When he came up to lightweight, he was a different fighter. He was way more successful. And I don't know what it is. It might be the weight cut. He's a lot bigger than he used to be. I like him at lightweight. I don't want to see Charles Oliveira move down unless it's only for a title fight against Volkanovski. But I don't think he beats Volkanovski. I don't think he could take down Volkanovski in the featherweight division. And he'll lose a lot of his strength like he did before. He was not that sort of wrestler at featherweight like he is at lightweight. And it might be a difference in strength. He's also way too easy to hit for someone as fast as Volkanovski. It's going to be a tough fight. I don't see him being Volkanovski. The other top featherweights... Same thing kind of goes for Max Holloway. They actually fought before, and really nothing much happened. Charles Oliveira just got injured in the fight. Didn't really have much to do with Max. But at this state, I don't see him beat Holloway as well. The guy I could potentially see him beat, maybe Yara Rodriguez, maybe Brian Ortega, maybe Kelvin Cater. Josh Emmett would be a scary fight. Yeah, man, everyone's going to be tough for him in that weight class. And then with the Coles Meteo, I stay confident in Cody Garbrandt's raw talent, speed, power, wrestling, through thick and thin. But clearly, he has a major problem with his boxing defense, composure, and fight IQ. Looking back on his six fights, since putting on a masterclass against Cruz, how do we explain that victory? Any other examples of rapid downfalls that seem to come way too early in a fighter's career? What I think happened was, Team Alpha Mill specifically prepared him to fight someone like Cruz. And that's why he looked phenomenal. He looked perfect in that fight. It looked like Cruz could do nothing to him. I think Uriah Faber... TJ Dillashaw, Joseph Benavidez, all these guys who lost to Dominic Cruz and all the trainers in that gym who prepared the fighters against Cruz, they found the guy who probably had the raw talent to put everything together. If they could focus on preparing him specifically to be a kryptonite against Dominic Cruz, they can then get one over him. And you have to also remember, Cody went from unranked to champion in a year. In that span of time, he didn't fight any top contenders. He fought Thomas Almeida and Takei Muzugaki, two guys that were on the decline in their careers who were in the top 10 but they were like ranked number seven and number eight. After that, he fought Dominic Cruz and destroyed him. He couldn't really beat many other credible opponents besides Haval Sunsao afterward. And Sunsao is on the decline. He's 39 years old in the bantamweight division. There's like nobody that old. He's the oldest guy in the top 10. And just as I predicted, he got destroyed by Ricky Simone. He's way too old. That's the guy that Cody Garbrandt was able to knock out. Everybody else he lost to. He lost to TJ Dillashaw. He lost to Pedro Munoz. And Pedro Munoz is not doing too great these days. He got destroyed by Rafont. The Rafont performance against him was the most dominant, right? TJ Dillashaw was kind of back and forth because I believe Cody was familiar with TJ's skills. That's why the fight was a lot closer than if he never trained or sparred with TJ before. Pedro Munoz is a very one-dimensional fighter in a lot of ways. He has a limited toolbox to work with, and Cody was able to get through with his sheer speed and win exchanges because of that. That's why that fight became a lot closer. But when he doesn't have these kind of advantages, or he's not familiar with the opponent, he doesn't do as well. Rafon destroyed him. In fact, beat him in what Cody does best, boxing. He goes down a weight class where he cannot even fight by his speed advantage against almost everybody he fights. Now his opponent can match his speed, and he gets blasted in that first round. Like, very little competition in that fight. My theory is, what I think happened to Cody Garbrandt was, his gym prepared him wrong. His gym trained him incorrectly for his career. It looks like they've trained him too much, too focused on Dominic Cruz, and not for his specific skills in general. That's what I think happened. And any other examples of rapid downfalls that were too early? Hennon Barrow, Johnny Hendricks. Those are two main ones. Thomas Almeida. And then with the Jameer B. How do you think Mighty Mouse would do against the top 10 flyweights and bantamweights? Also, love your videos. Thank you so much, man. Demetrius Johnson in the flyweight division. I don't think he does well in the bantamweight division. A prime Demetrius Johnson, I think, beats Brandon Moreno for sure. I think he's just more technical in almost every area of the game. Besides, I would say boxing. I think Moreno will be able to keep a jab on him, but Moreno scrambles a little bit too much. It's going to be very hard to scramble with Mighty Mouse for five rounds. Davis and Figueroa is a tricky one. But I'm going to go with Figueredo. I think the power difference is too much. It's almost like what we saw with John Dotson. Except that Figueredo can keep up with that power for five rounds. And that he possesses extremely solid fundamental Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I think he beats Askar Eskarov. In fact, I see him beating everybody else. I think Figueredo is definitely the hardest fight for him. And it's not mainly because of the skills. It's more about the power difference. In Bantamweight, maybe he can beat Marlon Vera. That'd be a tough fight, but it's competitive. And Pedro Munoz will also be competitive. He loses to Eljamain Sterling. He's not going to be able to do anything to Patreon. TJ Dillashaw destroys him. Josie Aldo completely shuts him down and probably knocks him out. Corey Sandigan obliterates him too. Rafont 
competitive, but gets outboxed for the most part. Gets outranged. Marab will outwrestle him completely. Dominic Cruz will dominate him through his strength again. Marlon Moraes is way too powerful. And it's also a reason why Demetrius Johnson is not doing great at bantamweight at one championship. And then we go to Gilad Abdi. What's the best strategy to beat the new wave of Chechen Dagestani fighters like Habib, Islam, Hamza, etc.? Obviously, having insane takedown defense will be important, but what else will be needed or should be implemented into the strategy? Which strategy is the best to fight these guys? Maybe try to take them down yourself, not backing up and taking control of the center, etc. The obvious of just have good takedown defense is not really going to do it. It's a lot easier said than done. So, first of all, fight in the center of the cage is important. It's more important against someone like Habib and Islam. Hamza has been shown to not really care. I mean, he's a different kind of wrestler. He's a lot more into freestyle wrestling than Habib and Islam are. So against Islam and Habib, keeping the fight in the center is crucial. It's one of the most important things that should be a part of your game plan. Number two, keep a high output. Don't overextend on punches because they will shoot under those, but keep a jab on them at all times. A lot of feints as well, not with the legs. Do not feint kicks because they will shoot in a takedown on your squared hips. Doesn't matter if it's a feint or not. So faking with the hands is going to keep them on edge a bit. It's going to slow them down momentarily. Like even split seconds of slowing them down is going to do huge for a fighter. Another thing fighters have to go for, tie plums. If they, if they clinch up with you, get into Thai Plum, get offensive, get some strikes in there, threaten them with something, even if they get you to the ground. Attack off your back, not necessarily give up positions, but land elbows, land punches, break posture, all this stuff. You got to get offensive than defensive. Resistance is also going to be key against them. Way too many fighters put too much respect against their style. They become so defensive and shell up against them. It's a reason why guys like Conor McGregor, Guys like Gleason T-Ball back in the day. Guys like even Pat Healy back in the day. They were able to do better on the ground than the guys who gave too much respect to that wrestling. Even Armin Saryukin. Look what Armin did to Islam Akashev because he attacked him. He did not play defense at all. You have to keep attacking them whether you're on the ground, whether you're in the clinch, whether they got a body lock on you. And even on the feet, keep the volume out there with pestering punches, jabs, feints, all that stuff to measure for the big shots. All this has to be backed up with trying to keep the fight in the center of the octagon as much as possible. And honestly, a big reason as to why so many fighters become so defensive and respect what Habib does to them, a lot of it is very foreign to them. The Dagestani handcuff and the positions that Habib gets on opponents, wrapping around the legs and all that stuff, is very new to so many fighters that they just can't help but be defensive against it because they're trying to understand what's happening. Now, what to do against Hamza Shemaev is a little bit different, but it, most of it is still unknown because we don't know too much about his striking. We don't know too much about his cardio, but potentially what it looks like right now, if his striking is as good as his training partners say, he might be even harder to beat than Habib and Islam Makhachev. Then we go to Luis Enrique. Jan versus Sanig was one of the most technical complex fights ever. So many subtleties, it's kind of hard to wrap my head around it. It was so complex and technical. It's one of the pure fights where you can just analyze it over and over again and find different things. One of the greatest fights I've ever seen. And they go to Elite O'Loughlin. Volkanovski has said that he will go up to 155, and Charles has said that he still considers himself a featherweight. How do you think this matchup will play out in each weight class? So at 145, it's different. 155 is the one I really would want to see because Volkanovski, as we all know, used to weigh like 500 pounds. So he could really get up there and fill himself up at lightweight. And 155, man, the fight might look a lot different. Volkanovski at lightweight fights very similar to the way he fought at featherweight, except with the fact that he has a lot more power in that weight class. There was a lot of guys at lightweight that he has knocked out. That worries me for Charles that doesn't get his head off the center line because one of the biggest punches that Volkanovski throws at taller opponents, overhand right and left hooks. Oliveira could potentially push him away with push kicks, but I can see Volkanovski getting by the jab and landing his overhands or landing his left hooks, getting his head off the center line, which is the line that Charles attacks everybody on, and even stuffing Charles Oliveira's takedowns. Volkanovski is a very hard guy to take to the ground, especially because of his stature. Oliveira's really going to have to dig in under for that initial shot. He does rise up into a body lock, and a body lock against a shorter opponent is actually better for the takedown. So actually, when I think about it, there is a play that Oliveira can go to. Because Volkanovski throws winging overhands and stuff like that at taller opponents, he's very precise with them. But let's say Oliveira does time it. He sees the overhand coming, and he shoots him for the takedown under it. That initial shot is what he needs, because in open space, it's going to be very hard for him to shoot in on Volkanovski. He shoots in under the overhand, and then rises into the body lock. I can see him picking up Volkanovski and slamming him, and that changes the fight completely. If I'm going to be honest here, that is one of the main ways I can see Oliveira beating Volkanovski. And that can happen at any moment. So what I'm going to say here is, if the fight goes to a decision, Volkanovski is winning 100%.
If the fight goes into the later rounds, he might still win the fight. If the fight gets finished, it's most likely to be Oliveira finishing Volkanovski. There's still a chance that Volkanovski can knock out Oliveira. Risky if he drops him and goes to the ground with him and stuff. You know, he does want to be in the same position he was with Brian Ortega. But the issue with Oliveira, man, is just he doesn't move his head off the center line and those overhands can catch him. If he could time it and get under, that's his chance to victory. If he doesn't, he can get hurt. You know what? I'm actually going to go with Charles Oliveira. There's another reason for this. Volkanovski is a lot more patient than Dustin Poirier. And he likes to hand fight from a distance. He will switch stances and stuff like that. Oliveira is an excellent fighter at keeping range on an opponent. Hand fight with them. Find his right straight. Find his jabs and find his front kicks. He's going to be able to add up on points. Attack the body consistently. And pressure Volkanovski into the cage where he can throw his elbows. He can close the distance for his tie plum. The knees in the clinch are definitely going to be horrendous for Volkanovski to deal with. So yeah, I'm actually have to side with Charles Oliveira in the lightweight division. And then what's a big, big money Gabby? What do you prefer, a dominant champion that stays on top for a long time or a competitive division with many champions? I like the competitive division personally because you see better fights. It's very fun to see a dominant champion run through a division, but at a certain time, man, what always happens? You want to see that guy challenge him. That's always a thing you want to see at the end of the day, whether it be Anderson Silva, whether it be GSP back in the day, John Jones, Dominic Cruz, Habib. Like, you want to see these guys get tested. So the competitive nature of a division is always going to be more fun. And then with the Jose Morales, how would a prime Benson Henderson do in today's lightweight division? Thank you for all your awesome videos. No problem, man. So prime Benson Henderson. One thing is for certain, it's going to be tough for anybody to really run through him. He is, even in today's standards, extremely well-rounded. Like, he's good at everything. He's a decent boxer. He's a great kicker. He's a good wrestler. He's great at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's great at scrambling. He's good in the clinch as well. Prime Benson also had an insane chin. I could definitely see him beating a lot of the guys in the lightweight division today. For an example, I see him beating Diego Ferreira. I definitely see him beating Brad Riddell. I think him and Armin Saryukin right now would have a competitive fight. I would lean to Benson Henderson, but that fight is 50-50 in my opinion. I think he beats Matyush Gamrot. I think he loses the Fiziev. Fiziev is just a little bit too quick and a little bit too clean with his technique. I think those hooks will get around the guard. I think from a distance, the body kicks are definitely going to tag him. The way Anthony Pettis was able to land a bunch of the body kicks, Fiziev is going to do the same thing. Like, there's no range on the feet that Benson's going to be comfortable at all. And I don't see him taking down Fiziev. I think he beats Gregor Gillespie. I think he beats Conor McGregor. He definitely beats Dan Hooker. I think he takes the fight to the ground and dominates. He definitely beats today's version of Tony. Rafa dos Anjos, I still think he loses the RDA but not nearly like he lost last time. RDA slowed down a little bit, but I still think he's solid enough to threaten the takedowns, attack the body kicks from southpaw position, attack with a lot of the left straights. So I see RDA winning through a decision this time. I definitely do not see him beating Benson by knockout like before. Michael Chandler, I have to go with Chandler. Too much horsepower in exchanges. His wrestling threat is always going to be there against Benson. Even though Benson is technically superior in almost every area, I think Chan's going to be able to muscle his way through or power his way through a lot of the exchanges. I think he loses to Islam Akashev. I think he beats Benil Dariush, but that's a very competitive fight. I think he loses to Dustin Poirier. Definitely loses to Justin Gaethje. That might be his worst matchup in the whole top 15. And definitely loses to Charles Oliveira as well. And then with the Daniel Silva, what are your opinions on MMA taking place inside of a cage? I think the fence really takes away from the live viewing experience and contributes to people cheating by grabbing it. Do you think another material could be used for the octagon that would remove the potential of cheating and also enhance the live viewing experience? How would the MMA landscape change if fights didn't happen inside of an enclosed space like the octagon, but instead of a more open space with no walls or boundaries? I get what you're saying. I was at one of the UFC events before, and man, the cage kind of does get in the way, especially for people who are up close or at a place where like the top piece of the octagon, the thick black part, is almost at eye level with the center of the octagon. If you're at that wrong angle where that piece of the cage is in your view of seeing the center of the cage, like it's very hard to see anything happen. Sometimes the closer up, the more expensive seats you get, the worse the viewing experience is. Open space has been talked about, especially from Joe Rogan. And I'm not opposed to it. I would actually love to see how it would work out. Karate Combat does something similar where they're almost like inside of a, like a ditch, like a trapezoid into the ground. Like I don't even know how to describe it, but it's a lot more open space than a cage. And it looks like it's a lot better for the viewing experience. There's not much cheating unless you're going up the ramp a bit, but let's say it's flat ground. There's no ramp. There's no angle on the ground that you can trip and fall or something. And there's no walls. The only thing I do not want to see out of that, the only thing that can go wrong, is if the fight goes too far to one side. If they're fighting, and one guy's getting pressured so heavily to one side, like they walk almost right into the crowd. That's something I do not want to see. I don't want to see the ref break it up because they're moving too far out of bounds. I know you're saying no boundaries, but there has to be some boundary because they're going to hit the audience. 
Like, imagine Habib, right? Habib puts uber pressure on somebody. The guy keeps backing up away from Habib. He doesn't want anything to do with wrestling. And he just, like, backpedals into the crowd. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to see anything like that happen. That's the only problem I have. Everything else, I like. Me, personally, I don't like the cage because, number one, it does allow a lot more stalling. Wall install is a thing. It does reward cheating. Grab onto the cage, pull yourself up, all this stuff. There's always going to be one warning, so in every fight, someone's going to have one attempt or one allowance to grab the cage. And the last thing is, because of the cage, there cannot be any stomps. If there's no cage, if there's no walls, then stomps should be allowed. It's not that easy to land stomps in open space when the guy's on the ground. If you trap them up against a wall, put their head in that corner between the wall and the floor, they're not getting away from stomps. They're trapped. And you can just stomp your way into a finish. Without that, now we can get more soccer kicks involved. We can get knees on the ground more involved. We can get stomps involved. It'd be great. The thing, though, I like about the walls and the fence and stuff is it creates a lot more of a strategic fight. You know, fighters don't want to get pushed up to the cage, right? So they're going to be more willing to press forward. Whereas in open space, no walls, there's going to be a lot of area where someone could just move around, right? So you could potentially get this scenario where someone's just constantly moving away from somebody and never engaging them because there is no wall that they can run into unless the open space is not that open and the crowd is so close to them, then that's something different. But then again, the ref has to get involved, reposition them back into the center, and I don't like that whole thing. I don't like disrupting the action. And then go to Comet Dude Man. Technique question. Doesn't Pyotr Jan or some of the most technical boxers in the UFC, they tend to do the switch combinations to close distance and continue power combos and find a lot of success. Why is this never scene in pro boxing is it not as good as it seems or is boxing just too traditional love your content man got post noties on everything my man that's how you do it thank you so much now the main reason as to why you don't see this as much in boxing there are a few guys who will do it facilo machico does it sometimes triple g does it sometimes is because in boxing they're a lot sharper with their punches i mean if you get caught mid-transition inside of that shift there's some damage that could be inflicted because you're very defenseless mid-shift and boxers are a lot sharper with their punches a lot more accurate at landing a jab landing a right cross or something like that you never want to give that big of an opening that's why you see boxers extremely defensive in their stance they don't like to get uncomfortable many times because there's so little room for error they don't want to make such drastic movements to get their power punches in there they'd rather just stay traditional there could be outliers like a Vasil Lomachenko but most guys are just not going to do that you're never really going to see Canelo go into that sort of thing Canelo has extremely good defense and when opponents miss punches on him he just needs one opening to connect now imagine those kind of openings miss shift on opponents you're never going to shift combo on Canelo or something like that you're just asking to get knocked out for it so the main reason for it is boxers are way too sharp with their hands it's going to be very difficult to get away with that especially in today's climate now, does this mean that MMA fighters are not good at boxing? No, because it's a different thing in MMA. In MMA, you could kind of get away with it because using traditional boxing skills in MMA, there's a lot of things you can't do. Simply because you can't take up the same stance takes away a lot of punches and defense that you can use. You take up a boxing stance in MMA, you're getting your legs kicked because you can't check. The boxing stance usually keeps your lee leg angled inward more. It's always ready for you to step in and out with jabs and stuff. It's extremely effective for half steps. But in MMA, your legs are going to get kicked, your ass is going to get taken to the ground, your position so sideways because in boxing you're taught to keep the smallest target possible for your opponent. But sometimes in MMA, this is not what you want to do because kicks are now involved. When you position your stance sideways, yeah, you're taking away an angle for punches to hit you directly, but not kicks. That's why Muay Thai fighters generally don't keep sideways stance. They're very squared. What happens when a kick gets thrown at you? You want to actually shift away from it, and by shifting away from a round kick, you're rotating squared in front of your opponent, and that's not a traditional boxing stance. So there's many reasons why the shift combo works better in MMA than it does in boxing. There's so many different tools in MMA that you have to be worried about and that you have to train for that, let's say, if an opponent keeps their stance squared, it's now a lot easier to land the shift combo against them. They're not able to slide away from them the way boxers can, and also the target is a lot bigger for you to land your punches. MMA fighters have smaller gloves. You can't block the shift combo the same way you can in boxing. And that is the end of the podcast, guys. Great questions. Again, I hope you guys have amazing holidays. Merry Christmas to everybody. Have some good quality downtime. Stay safe, and I'll see you guys in the next video.